So, this is our third evening at this meditation hall. You all really already look quite a bit brighter, all of you. You kind of shed quite a few, a few pounds of stress and misery already. Just imagine multiplied by three in the tens according to my calculation, nine days plus one. Pretty light by the end of ten days, <laughs> ready to kind of get into enough space to gather momentum as soon as you go out of the monastery. <laughs> but we don't want to look at it like that. You know, it's important to realize that things are not the way they appear to be we tend to think in a very rational way we tend to think in a very logical way and so on and that can really it's a kind of prison in a way it's a kind of gel we encapsulate ourselves into a reality that is not so solid you know for one thing we think the self is really absolutely unquestionably real me is real you know what I feel is mine, what I feel is something terrible, I should not really suffer, I should not really be stupid, and, you know, I should not be unsuccessful, I should be really good and kind, and then when we pick up a spiritual path, things just get a lot worse. You noticed? If suddenly you have this example, for example, the great being like the Buddha, and then you feel even worse. It's like the precepts and all that. That's what I used to say. My my life would be much my life would be much simpler if I hadn't taken and you know the path of Buddhism. At the beginning, I used to think like that. Of course, not now. Momentarily, by the way, just in in passing, not all the time, <laughs> in a kind of humorous way, because I will never have done anything else but what I've done. So. But jokingly, I used to think, gosh, my life would be so much more simple if I hadn't sort of um, endeavored to um, raise my um, kind of level of aspiration about this life to such a degree that I was really keen to liberate my mind from its stupidity. You know, most of it, when we talk about avidya, is not so much that we are sick or anything like that. It's much more serious than that. It's just we see things in a very distorted way, and the distortion is pretty painful. You know, distortion is what we call the, the first noble truth. We see things in a way that is, um, you know, not really um, true. So what is true? That's an interesting question. What is true? Well, at least you can be really know the truth that nothing is really true. <laughs> it's a great relief already to know that nothing is as real as we imagine it to be. You can't maybe know much more than that. You know, know that the truth is that what we discovered along the past that there is suffering, there is a cause, there is an end, there is a path. I mentioned that yesterday and the Suffering has to be known, the cause has to be let go of, the um, letting go or the, the cessation of suffering has to be, um, you know, uh, realized, and the past has to be developed. So uh, there's quite a bit of work to do. The Buddha didn't leave us with just say suffering and Bob's your uncle. <laughs> he just said, um, Suffering, cause, end, and the past. So the past is about what we can do in our life as a human being. What? How can we use our human life? And it seems simple, maybe at some level, because the society, the cultures, as it tell us all the things we have to do, all the things we shouldn't do, all the things we have to uh, hope for, and so on. But actually, um, it's a lot of you know, it's a lot of lies in all that. It's very, it's, we live in a world of lies. That's a trouble. Look at the billboards. Just look at the billboards. I used to say, if you really 
want to understand something, look at the billboard. This is a perfect training to develop the hindrances, for example. You can make a, a film about these things. The five hindrances, greed, hatred, sloth and torpor, agitation and worry, and doubt. You just look at the billboard in London. How many times are you going to start doubting that you, maybe you need a new car, a new house, a new home, a new fridge? And that is about hundreds and hundreds of objects of our daily life that we have to, you know, that it brings up this kind of envy, desire, jealousy, um, despair of not getting what we should think we think we should get, feeling stressed because we don't have enough money to get anything that we see. We're supposed to kind of improve our life. And we believe it. We just cobble it down. So, it's not our fault, it's just, you know, the, the work of perception, the work of perceiving the world in a certain way, and the way the, world, the, the way the mind works. The mind works in a kind of polarized way, which means that we always kind of end up on one side of the polarity, either one or the other, very rarely in the middle, balanced. Because the balance takes wisdom, the real... It's a process of wisdom, the balancing act of not being caught in one side or the other. It's just like, it's not just being tepid and lukewarm. Sometimes you talk about to people about the middle way. <laughs> they don't quite know what you mean. It's like, you just have to be not quite sure, maybe yes, maybe not. You know? Is it just like I don't make too much noise and I can just go down the road of life without kind of being too noticed? You know? But it's not that, you know, the middle way, you know, the path, the middle way is about, the, it's, it's actually what happened when you realize the end of dukkha, when you realize the end of delusion, when you realize the end of greed, hatred, and so on. The middle way is knowing the, the polarities of the mind so well, you know, when you get angry, Okay, and you notice you get angry, and immediately maybe you feel guilty, and you want to be really nice to the person you got angry with, and you create a whole scenario in your mind to kind of get over the guilt and the remorse of being nasty to somebody. And then you're too kind to somebody, you're kind to somebody, you're too kind to somebody, and you start feeling really miffed because they don't notice it, and they don't feel grateful towards you. You know, they don't really say thank you. So you get really angry because they're not nice enough, <laughs> not kind enough. Do you understand? That we live in this world of complete illusion. And then you get an insight in meditation. I used to say, please God, don't send me any more insight, I've had enough. <laughs> Why? Because insight is like, you know, if you're not careful, the mind clings to it. Just naturally clings to it and it remembers it, you know. I remember I had one insight that was really profound. I was doing walking meditation on the first retreat with Achan Sumedhu and the Sangha in 79, and I spent my walking... We were all together, had a, all these great beings, I'm not talking about myself, all the great beings that we have now, Achan Sumedhu, Achan Suchito, Achan Anandu, who's passed away now. Uh, we had Achan Amaru, and uh, where else? Achan Viradamu, and uh, uh, some of them are just gone. And we were all sort of doing our winter retreat all together, walking just in front of Chitters, just there, all together. And when I think about it, it's very amazing, you know, it was really fun. Anyway, um, it was a one-month retreat, or the two, and the first, the first year was a one-month retreat, the second year was, we started on two-months retreat. It was so, so enjoyable to do those retreats. After, with all the work we had there, <laughs> working like hell, so the idea of just sitting for a month was really heaven, you know, in, in, relatively speaking. And so, I remember, just in case, if it, I'm just saying this, just in case it happened, in case it happened to you. So I was w doing walking meditation in from the side of Chetas at the house, and I had suddenly the the, the kind of great, the, a message from the from above. I don't know where it came from, but it's like. Ajahn Sumedho knows I know, no, Ajahn Sumedho knows that I'm enlightened. <laughs> Fortunately, I have a sense of humor, you know, and I didn't take care of myself too seriously. <laughs> yeah? 
Ajahn Suminu knows. Oh, I think he was worse. Ajahn Suminu knows that you know you're enlightened. Something like that. Now, a normal person would have gone mad. You know, if you just kind of, sort of, just, <laughs> you could have gone crazy if you believed your mind, would you? Fortunately, I didn't believe my mind. I just thought, how interesting, you know. Who is that? Hello? <laughs> Anybody there? <laughs> to shake hands? Ajahn Subinu knows that, well, I just keep it simple, that I know that I'm enlightened. Ajahn Subinu knows I'm enlightened. So I did tell him at the end of the retreat, and we just had a good laugh. <laughs> I had this mantra, Ajahn Subinu knows that I'm enlightened. So if it happens to you, don't worry, you're not a Buddha yet. <laughs> You might not be enlightened. You might be, you never know. <laughs> but enlightenment, that takes me to the whole world, the whole realm of enlightenment. What is enlightenment, you know? People sometimes are waiting for enlightenment. Uh, people wait for good, or, you know, it's like one day I'll be enlightened. One day. If I work really hard, if I sweat on my cushion, perspire, with concentration and effort and energy, if I fast, if I sleep less, if I eat less, if I think more about the Buddha, if I hate myself a bit less once I, my mother loves me more and my friends really realize how wonderful person I am and my dog don't stop barking when I don't ask him to do barking, then maybe I'll be enlightened. You know, I mean, I, I'm making humorous, but don't we have a whole program, you know? If I do this, this, and this, and this, and that, and that, and that, maybe at the 10th retreat. I've noticed people do 10th retreat, 20 retreat. I've done many retreats. And, you know, I could, if I've, ex if I was in a state of expectation, I could be maybe disappointed. But actually, because I practice metta and loving kindness and the win-win tragedy rather than win-win, you know, lose-lose tragedy, I do the win-win, basically constructive approach to life and celebratory approach to life rather than, oh God, I'm such a hopeless case, you know. I mean, I meet people all the time. Hopeless, I'm so terrible, you know, I've been meditating for 20 years and I can't get one breath mindful for a second, you know. I just forget about your breath, you know, just just be happy. <laughs> Maybe you start being mindful. <laughs> In a way, this kind of um, teaching can really uh, be misunderstood, you know, taken in the wrong way. So, we can take enlightenment as, you know, being a fully enlightened Buddha, but you can also take enlightenment as just knowing, knowing what is happening now. Most of people, you know, you could say the opposite of enlightenment will be unenlightened, okay? Most of, I could say, my life for till the age of 29, 30, I felt it was unenlightened in the sense that there was no really, I mean, I, you know, I thought I was quite clever and I was quite gifted in some way, in some aspects and so on. But, you know, I did not know what suffering was about. I suffered, but I never knew what it was about. Or I never, I was never conscious, really fully conscious of the cause and effect of my life, you know. I was just a victim, as you say, like just receiving life in a kind of blind way. And trying to find my way through this kind of blind world. But, you know, I had a lot of good conditions, good parents. I had a very good husband for 10 years. I had a, a good situations. I did something I loved. You know, I, I, I was with people that I, I loved very much. I, I, you know, I didn't have a big tragedy or anything like that. But I still felt that pang somewhere of something missing. You know, there's something missing. The missing part was I was not awakened. The mind hadn't awakened yet. Do you understand? So, and you could say the mind hadn't experienced what is to be enlightened to something rather than confused by it. 
So very often we can sort of think of all the words that we have a concept and ideas we have accumulated in our mind and all the brain work we've done to sort them out and to make them palatable or understandable to us. But very often do we get to the the deeper aspect, what I call the human aspect, actually. We create ourselves straight away into something that should be better. We create ourselves, we divorce ourselves often with reality of now. Yeah? So it's it's dangerous sometimes, you know, because instead of kind of reaping the happiness and the peace that comes from understanding, very often we can easily make our life really more confused, more hellish, more demanding in a kind of negative way, you know, more critical. This is something you notice when you come to the monastery. You know, you think, oh, you know, I mean, you come from lay life and at the point where you consider yourself relatively socially kind of well-adjusted person. You're kind of polite and people are quite fond of you or you can you can like people really very much and so on. And then you come to the monastery. And that's a big awakening, you know, because after about a week you start hating everybody. You know, instead of growing up in compassion, growing in compassion and wisdom, you suddenly, everybody is kind of irritating. Even the nicest people. You start finding fault, you know. It's like your critical mind is on overdrive. It's really overdrive. It's like everybody is a problem. I think that's what Chinsumedo said, there's no problem, maybe because we all thought the same, you know. But it's not like we, we want to think like that. It's a, the mind start churning its mind of states, mind states, you know, because it's kind of, you know, hungry for things. It doesn't have much to chew on, only one meal a day, and for the first two years at Chitas, we didn't even have breakfast, but a cup of tea. And then, you know, we don't have parties and we can't go to the movies and find a new partner and you can't go and buy things in the middle of nowhere as far as I was concerned, you know, living in London before. And then suddenly the mind is kind of just on the attack. It's just kind of famished, you know, and you just want to get anything, you know, even a normal miserable moment is better than nothing. You know, having an argument with somebody seems to be more alive than dying with no argument. <laughs> you feel it's just absurd at some point. It's totally absurd. And you can, I suppose you could easily sort of uh, uh, connect this with like a family group, you know? You know how we are in the family. Nobody can find anything nice in the family. It's interesting. I've got two sisters, they're really lovely, on the spiritual path, path of awakening, full-time, you know. And we're very friendly. Now, we've done a lot of work together to become quite friendly, which means we're more detached from each other. That's what happened when we're less. And the detachment comes from the fact that you react less, you know. When you when you say something nice and they don't respond immediately, how wonderful, like they do now in the monastery, People are really nice in the monastery nowadays. You know, you notice people are very polite, they're very friendly, they do their hand in Anjali all the time, smile, you know, sometimes I get tired smiling because I have to smile to so many people. You know, but it's a very smiling place here. There's, you know, you do a lot of responding to smiles. So it's very sweet, you know, it's very nice. But when you go back to the family, Ajananandu, who passed away, and I used to say to me, he was really a, a fantastic monk, you know, and he was really a good practitioner. I don't know if somebody, some of you remember him, but he was like, he said, when I go back to America, it doesn't take two weeks before I have, I have an argument about the price of eggs with my mother, you know. It's like, you know, like years with Ajahn Shah and so on, you know, practice and all the rest of it. It suddenly doesn't take much to get back into the habit of 
arguing and uh, having a, a kind of an attack on something like the price of eggs. So I'm just telling you all this story just to you know give you a real sense of how mad the world is, and the 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 world is in in here, not out there. Don't be fooled, you know, to think that the world out there is mad. It's just the the world of ignorance is is a world of madness. Do you understand? Is that too strong for you? No. It's a mad world, but there is so much hope and so much. Uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of a, how can I say what is the word? Well, there's there's a lot of scope for improvement towards a great happy world. Don't worry about it. You know, fortunately, we have the to me without the teaching of the Buddha, probably would have died of despair. Probably, even though I went to the monastery very happy, I just never thought I would stay at the monastery. That's why. I thought I'd spend months, you know, just to see what it's like. I don't retreat with the Chansomedo. The result of cause and effect, I saw very, very vividly. I remember, remember, I was living in London, and I began to, you know, I didn't know how this retreat had affected me. But one of the things I noticed, I opened all my cupboards and started cleaning them and tidying them up really neatly, like I've never done in my life. Folding everything. My sister, one of my sisters, is like that. Everything is neat and folded. I was more the type that I just chuck things in the cupboard and hope for them to just flatten by themselves. <laughs> when I was young, you know, but I did like ironing things, so I would dress well. But what really surprised me, the simple act, the simple, just notice simple action if you want to know how better you are now, you know, simple things, be vigilant. So for me to to peacefully clean my cupboard, it was a sense of timeless feeling, you know, like I had time, I could do this nicely, I was peaceful, and I've noticed, wow, this is amazing, amazing. Is that you? <laughs> you know, normally I was like always like going somewhere, rushing somewhere, you know, jumping up to something and so on. Suddenly here was me quietly, kind of neatly, mindfully. I've done 10 days of mindfulness, you see. And I really paid off. But I never thought of going to the monastery. I went off to Paris to prepare performances and so on. And I went off to different places to teach dance, you know, Yugoslavia, Germany, you know. So I was not particularly keen on monastic life, religion in general. I, you know, well, I came from a family that rejected religion anyway, so my education was not, you know, in terms of becoming more devoted to a religious path. But, you know, um, you, sh you can see how in your life the scope and the hope that is present for us, you know, the, 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 what we can expect in a way from this living a good life is that it the results are not very visible. Do you understand? Don't expect to be so visible in terms of being recognized as a finally an enlightened bodhisattva. People don't notice that usually. They tend to complain you're not good enough. This is quite good. <laughs> this is quite the common kind of message is like you could improve for me, so I really uh, you know, I could really find, I could be happy with you if you improved a little bit more. You know, the world is cruel, isn't it? The world of people's mind. We're cruel to each other often. You know. And the idea of practicing metta, to be kind, it's not really part of the curriculum of the primary school, secondary school, university, and so on. You know, we don't have a particularly uh, a, a kind of subject called cultivating metta and love, compassion. And yet, everybody wants love. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody feels maybe they're not loving enough and suffer from that. Everybody miss out on love. Okay, So many people are desperate to be loved and to love other people. Isn't it true? Desperate. So, in our world, though, when you're just kind and friendly, 
the world has decided that being kind and friendly is something to be really suspicious of. They are very kind to me. What do they want from me? You know, this is a world. It's not you. It's a, it's a, it's a material world. A human world is like that. I'm myself, by nature, extremely suspicious. I thought I must have been a detective in past life or something, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something, because I always like look at details, you know. <laughs> but I'm watching, don't worry, I'm not acting on this, I just notice a habit, you know. Well, I'm also suspicious, you know, detective for this one here, so I don't let it kind of get its way as, as much as it would if it wasn't watched by this mind of mine, yeah. So, um, I'm going to say a, f a few words about meta now. So I've told you about the mad world, the mad mind, right? The Buddha doesn't say it explicitly like that. He just thought after his enlightenment that what he'd found was so refined that the world of human being completely, completely, and, and, and sort of enthralled in sense pleasures could never, never get it. They couldn't get it. It's not possible. Until, fortunately, our dear friend, we can thank the god uh, Brahma Sahampati. This is a chant that we do when we ask for a teaching. It goes way back to the Buddha time, 2,500 years ago, when Brahma Sahampati, when he saw that the Buddha had some doubt about as to whether he could teach mankind or not, he, from with, with his psychic power, psychic ability, he saw the Buddha kind of hesitating to teach. So he comes straight down from the heaven. In the the speed in the Buddhist uh, scriptures is usually expressed through flexing and bending and opening and flexing the mind, uh, the 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 form. That really means very fast. So going very fast and beg the Buddha to teach people who have little dust in their eyes. Do you know this story? Yeah? Some of them are... Some of, are there any Buddhist scholars here or anything like that? No, no, no. I've read enough books on Buddhism, I guess. So, Brahma Sahampati saw this and came down and asked the Buddha, please, please, you know, for those who have little dust in their eyes, please teach the Dhamma. I can't imagine the scene. It must have been quite amazing. And finally the Buddha decided to teach. That's when he went to his companions, you remember? And his companions, of course, had given up on him completely, thinking he was complete sissy, you know? You say sissy in English? Yeah. Kind of weakling. He'd lost it, you know, because he'd had accepted a bowl of rice, milk of rice, <laughs> by this, um, by Sujata, the woman who went, uh, was walking past, and I noticed there was a sadhu, because sadhus are common in India. He was at a unique sadhu, many sadhus in India. So she might have noticed there was something a bit special though about him, I guess. And so um, he went to see his companion, and his companion, you can see, even sadhu is pretty enlightened, so the Buddha had lost it, you know, because he, he, de he decided not to follow the path of extreme asceticism, which was common, which is common in India, in Indian society. And instead, he accepted a bowl of rice and uh, milk rice and uh, kind of sat under the tree and decided to realize enlightenment after having gained a little bit of weight. And when he went to his um, friends who had practiced with him for six years, they said, here come Gotama, you know, don't give him any seeds, you know, he's kind of lost it. <laughs> don't, don't pay attention, don't. don't. I'm just kind of interpreting a little, you know. <laughs> just don't look, don't look at him, you know. He lost the plot. <laughs> he ate, ate, you know, accepted food. This is not fair. You know, I don't want to say anything about this ascetic, but I don't want the the heaven to follow me <laughs> too much. So. When he arrived, but then they noticed he had something a bit special, you know. They were like overwhelmed by his, I guess, his radiance, you know, and the incredible magnitude of his presence. And then suddenly, without even thinking, they put a special seat for him, put a mat, you know, maybe two mats, and then invited him to sit. And that's when he taught the first teaching, 
the Four Noble Truths, the teaching of the, um, you know, Four Noble Truths. Dhammachakka Pavatana Sutta, the teaching of the turning of the wheel of Dhamma, in which he described the Four Noble Truths in details. Maybe we'll chant it before the end of the retreat. We'll see. Depends how confident you feel with your all the little twigglings up and down and up and down. So, <clears throat> eventually, they noticed that he was special, taught, and, of course, one of them, by the end of it, was enlightened. So, he wasn't enlightened in the sense he was like the Buddha. He was more, he saw the truth. He saw that everything passes away, arises and passes away. Everything. So he was enlightened to that realization. Obviously, he hadn't seen it while he was doing uh, his uh, practice with uh, ascetic practices, you know. But when Buddha said that, suddenly his enlightenment arose in one of his companions. So I don't know if it was a Suttapana or Sakya Dagami or Anagami or. But he wasn't around yet, I don't think. So, out of kindness, because of the, the compassion of Brahma Sahampati, we have this beautiful teaching, which leads me to speak a little bit now about loving kindness. It's a big topic. Because if you well, like uh, the way I was myself, which I think is quite common, it's a common illness, is that just the word metta used to kind of give me the irritation experience. You know, nowadays we have metta retreat, a lot of, um, you know, people have practiced a lot of metta and so on, but in my time, like 30 years ago, over 30 years ago, there was a lot of angry people, including myself, but we hadn't done a meta retreat yet. <laughs> so there was an accumulation of sort of angry types together, including Achinsumedu. He was also an angry type, but he w had worked already on his anger, so he knew all about the um, reactivity of angry types in relationship to meta. How many people had the same feeling? As soon as you talk about loving kindness and kindness, you start feeling angry. And I can see all of you have worked through that because you're not laughing. <laughs> 20 years ago, 30 years ago, everybody would crack up laughing because they knew that's exactly what they felt. But now I can see you're more mature. You've seen it already so well that you don't even react anymore. <laughs> it's great. So metta, it's actually quite difficult to be really um, acting from an enlightened mind in the world, you know, not talking about me, but just generally a mind that would integrate all the teaching of the Buddha, that could integrate all the teaching of the Buddha. That's why people go to the forest generally, because they know they can't do it in London <laughs> or in New York, you know. They'll be beaten up to death because people will think that they're just being abusive with all this loving kindness and compassion. So, metta is, um, is interesting because in some ways you could say mindfulness is already an aspect of metta. Okay? Um, it's not in the book, but if, if people who practice understand that very well. When you have, when you are mindful of yourself, it means you are very present with yourself, okay? And when you're very present to yourself, there's already uh, an act of acceptance of yourself as you are, right? You could not be present with yourself, if you were constantly reacting in a state of reactivity, constant reactivity, and hate, self-hatred. You notice during this time, two, three days you've done meditating, 
you come to a place of greater acceptance of yourself, don't you? This meditation is forcing the mind to see itself, you know. So that's um, an aspect of metta. Metta is not so much, um, you know, uh, sort of becoming a sweet, kind and loving uh, woman or man. It's uh, the wisdom of understanding that you can also accept your anger and your misery, the critical mind, but for example, which is so cutting. The destructive mind. You can actually accept in yourself the fact that these forces are part of a human mind. They're not you, fortunately. They're not mine, they're not yours. But there they are, you know. So sometimes metta just starts with being aware that you want to chop people's head a few times a day. So do it start with that, you know, you want to kill them. I mean, metaphorically speaking, I'm not talking about. You wish you could just stamp on them, trample them, when the anger is really strong, you know. You have this image of just kind of twisting their neck and throwing them out of the window. I've got quite a creative mind. I'm really sorry I wasn't a cartoonist, really. I'm so sorry. I would have made you much more laugh than... But when I say that, it's with humor. You understand that, you know. That's the kind of images sometimes that would come humorously, you know. You know that, don't you? You never do it, of course. You never twist anybody's neck. For one thing, you couldn't, you know. People are too fat these days. <laughs> But, but you, you feel, so the metta, the first step of metta is not to start of filling your mind with may I be well, may I be happy, may I be, and get all kind of fluff, fluffed up with, you know, sweetness and love, which can happen. But just the first step is to accept the fact that you really hate everybody. <laughs> At some point, one of my great enlightenment was like, the part when I began to be truly much kinder to my fellow citizens is when I completely, fully, consciously realized that everybody got on my nerve. Everybody, not one single being was not irritating. I realized human being are just an irritating form. And then I, I, I learned from scientific mind that Amoeba, amoebas, apparently, they only move through irritating each other. So I felt very kind of empathetic to this amoeba's world. <laughs> we might be just little amoebas in the universe, you don't know, <laughs> after all, you know, kind of irritating each other. And so, ideally, we don't want to see ourselves like that, don't we? We want to see she's wonderful, she's great, you know, she's so kind, she's so peaceful, blah, blah, blah. But actually, a mind that has not been trained is still incredibly irritating, as you know. You know, and you know, being a Buddhist doesn't make you less irritating. Sometimes you become more irritating, because you want everybody to be like you. You want them to be kind and loving and sweet like you. sometimes. <laughs> no, but you do have a number of people you think like that, you know. My mother used to think like that at some point, where she thought if I was really nicer, then she would be okay. Of course, by now, we have the whole long history of psychotherapy, psycho psychology, psychotherapy, kind of galore, you know, in all form and shapes, and all screaming and not screaming. You know, all kinds of mindfulness space. Anyway, I haven't studied this many. <laughs> so we know about the mind a bit more. We're more kind of relaxed with our mind because we don't expect so much. You know, we realize that the disease of delusion is pretty deep. It's quite frightening sometimes what the mind comes up with, you know, what can the mind can conjure up. 
like for example the projections we 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 manifest how many times in your life you think the problem is out there and we we say oh my god i'm so bad you're not bad it happened by itself you're not actually choosing to project things on people it do, it it does itself because if you're angry with somebody there's a point where you don't know how to contain it so the mind is very clever it's her fault if she stop being angry i'll be okay with me so projection is not a problem it's something that happens when the mind cannot take on board what it's doing do you understand it cannot take responsibility for what's happening to this mind and i notice you can you can just see projection now i can see projection in myself but they don't go very far they don't go far i don't believe in projection this is not a world that i i trust anymore finished you know but it still can happen you can see the mind it's habits like a shadow a shadow thing that just come out of you and it's going to jump on somebody if you're not really mindful and aware that's why we spend a lot of time sorting out the world outside us because we never believe that actually this is happening in here <clears throat> now you i'm sure many of you will kind of convince me that much of your misery is not something you do it's something <laughs> other people do to you and sometimes it's really true you know that's really true life is very painful and situation of life are very very cruel and painful but when you practice the dhamma you are come you come to a level now where you are you don't act as if you were unenlightened you understand now you have seen enough to know that the path that we walk is not to recreate my old self the path that i'm walking is to rise up to the challenge of having to live to what i know what i've seen clearly to the truth i've seen do you understand to rise up to actually take the challenge to be kind when you don't want to be kind you know something in you say I have to be careful the words I use because some of them are actually swearing words. So I say back off, you know. But you don't say that, do you? Is that is that rude, isn't it? Yeah, just get off. Yeah, go away, go away. I don't want to see you. You know that kind of thing. And then the training is that go away, go away, get out. I can't stand you. And then you see. Breathing, breathe out, anapanasati. Feeling in the body, vedana. Changing. Changing. Can't stand you. Another set, another session of <laughs> anapanasati. And after a few minutes, you actually feel better. You actually can contain the power of your anger and frustration. I'm kind of I think we should have a little theatrical retreat one day when we actually perform rather than, uh, you know, go into a lot of quotations and stuff like that. Right? <laughs> so, to rise up to the challenge of being a practitioner, you stop looking at yourself as a victim. You know, nowadays I feel very confident to say to the nuns, there's no victim here. I said, oh, you know, people, I'm making my money, but this one, that one, and poor, you know, I don't know what to do, poor me, you know, nobody understands me, it's terrible, you know, I'm just such a kind person, nobody notice. <laughs> I used to feel a lot like that myself. I didn't say the, I mean, I used to, if I said something like that to myself, I'd start laughing, so I wouldn't be able to take it too seriously, you know. But that's how the, the, the emotion works, you know. I say to them, there's no victim here. You're very strong women. 
how could you be not a strong woman to come to, to a place like a monastery and want to walk the path of non-delusion? Who does it in the world? Not many people, you noticed? So don't tell me you're nuns, you know, like in, in, in India or in Thailand because you've lost your husband, your mother was dead, you've got to, you have no money, you're poor, you're this, you're dead brain or brain dead, sorry, <laughs> you know. <laughs> don't, don't tell me, you know, this is not true. You're really strong to be a nun. You have to be very strong to bear with somebody telling you to work, to clean the toilets in a certain way when you spend a whole time cleaning and meditating and the mantras to make sure it's all well done and somebody comes along, you haven't done it well enough now. You have to be very strong to be able to bear that kind of stupidity. <laughs> but I add something very important. You will see the victimized mind. You will see the victim in the mind maybe for 20 years, just to give them a long time to not expect anything, at least for the first 10 years. Don't expect Just be at peace. If you see it, just make peace with it. Just continue, continue. I speak like that to my mind, you know. To calm it down, you see, it's okay. If you know the law of energy how it works, it's quite amazing. You say to your mind, you fight against some kind of train of thought, you know. Like, I'm, you know, I'm not lost of subject, don't worry, I'll come back to it. Train of thought where you cook all morning at on the retreat of Ashen Somedo. I was a cook with another person, and all day I kind of, all afternoon I'm cooking on my meditation bag, on my meditation cushion, cooking. I know three days of that, I said, I'm going to go crazy. Cook in the morning, cook in the afternoon, in my mind. And then at some point, you know, just trust that. I'm telling you stories which are really important. If you listen to them, I hear this little voice in me. Well, you know, compassion's voice, really sweet. You know, we have so many voices, uh, thought in our mind that we believe, nasty thought, good thought, bad thought, wisdom thought sometimes comes and say, well, you know, Sundara, you cook all morning. I don't know who was talking to me, you know. You cook all morning. What do you want to think in the afternoon? It's kind of normal. It's almost a penny dropped, you know. The penny dropped. And it, everything calmed down. Stop fighting. And then I said to my mind, you know, dear mind, I can write a letter, dear mind, you can think for 3,000 years and I'll be there for you. I'll be here helping you. Do you know, as soon as I finished that, all sorts stopped. Just give a big, generous meal to something, and they don't want to eat. It's too much. But I'm telling you a true story. And it's a, it's a principle, you know, that you can use in your life. When you stop fighting. It's like, so, going back to uh, metta, when you stop fighting, it means your heart is at peace. And when your heart is at peace, wisdom can really help you. Don't believe it doesn't exist, this wisdom aspect of the mind, of understanding, of knowing things as they are. So knowing things as they are, it's like as soon as I relaxed and I said to my mind, I tricked it, you know, a little bit. He said, and I don't know where that came out, me, like 3,000 years. I mean, why would I say that on a retreat where... People kept talking about the present moment. <laughs> 3,000 years, I'll be patient with you. You can think as much as you want. You can see Mara behind it, like push and misery and misery to make you believe you've got to get rid of thinking. You see? You've got to get rid of anger, get rid of greed, you've got to get rid of envy, get rid of that person because, you know, so the path is a great turning. It's like a U-turn in one's human life. Basically, it's a path of love. Path of love, loving kindness and compassion. At some point, you cannot anymore live without realization. And I had to be in a monastery to be stuck in this place to see it, otherwise I would have been distracted all the time. I would have run away all the time. 
But when you're in a monastery and you are with nuns, they're very good nuns, even now that I'm a better nun, I'm a kinder nun and so on, even now, it took me several years to accept some of the older nuns, you know, are with me, who are very kind and very loving and caring. And because of their habits or whatever, you know, I have my, like my habits probably irritate an enormous amount of people. Their habits, I just, I wanted to twist the neck to one of them and the other has something horrible as well. <laughs> but then you watch that, you know, the, the, the transformation comes from seeing this, the anger, the frustration, and the irritation, the incredible irritation. Non-acceptance, in other words, you know, don't accept. But because I'm stuck as a nun here, voluntarily, by the way, you know, <laughs> completely in my own will, I could go out tonight and down the pub if I wanted to, okay? I don't have my high heel shoes, but <laughs> I could. It's okay to do that. It's okay. As a nun, as a monk, you can actually disrobe whenever you want. So, but anyway, I'm not, can't lose the thread of my stories now. Why was I? Eh? Anyway. So, <laughs> I've lost it. Go on that thing. What was that? Talking about? Oh, yeah, meta speaking. Yeah, well, well, let's go back to let's go back to meta. This, like, I haven't. I'm just the details of the story. Eh? That's right. That's right. My sisters and all the rest of it. Yeah. So what I noticed, it's really a worthwhile story for you. That's why when you get old, you know, things don't cling to and stop clinging. Everything disappears. You know, <laughs> and the brain gets older as well. So. What I was wanted to say is that because you are in a place where you decided to really work on yourself, then what I noticed is that you see all this misery, all these terrible kind of negative thoughts and non-accepting, which are totally justified. I mean, you, I could really reasonably feel justified by having those thoughts, you know. But even then, this is not the path I have taken, okay? I haven't taken the path of making people miserable. Do you understand? So that kind of pushed me into accepting people as they are. And the miracle of this is what when you actually work on yourself in that way, what happens? Other people change. Do you understand? Other people also become just the way you want them to be. Well, not quite, but, you know, almost. <laughs> No, <laughs> 100% perfect. But if one is too slow, she's a bit faster. If the other one is too much this, she goes a bit more into the middle. Just out loving kindness for what you're going through yourself. Do you understand? Just out of acceptance and loving kindness for your anger, frustration, irritation, negativity, critical mind, which has nothing to do with you I tell you, when you spend 30 years watching your mind and you know, not me, not mine, not me, not mine, empty, not me, not mine, not self. So at some point, it's a reality. Do you understand? It's not just something you say. You know it's not you, for sure. We live with an entity in there that we amass together and we create me. Do you understand that construct? We attach to it long enough to create something solid. So, um, yeah, so this practice of metta, the first step is to deal with what is not metta. Yeah? People want to be kind and loving, but they don't know where to start. First of all, how do you feel when you see this person? You want to love this person, but how do you feel? Do you feel good about this person? She's horrible. You you can hear. You want to feel. You want to work really hard to be loving to that person. But what you think about this person, is it nice and friendly? We discover, we have a mountain of miserable thoughts about somebody. If you're like me, we don't want to admit it, because we just want to have loving kindness in the heart. 
we can tell our friend I'm developing loving kindness and love and compassion. But nobody's going to say to somebody else, I've been watching my hellish mind of anger for a week now to practice metta. People say, you're mad. It's a paradox of spiritual life. Do you understand? You know, you actually make peace with your anger, the metta rises in your heart. Yeah? It's quite amazing. Maybe I should tell you, an, you want another funny story? No? Too late, isn't it? It's a true story. <laughs> I'm a true, but I love telling stories, I have to really be careful. I mean, they're true stories, so not just kind of, and they, I, they don't come just by chance. It's something that may be helpful to you as well. About this anger and this metta together, okay? That might help you also to practice with it. One day I was practicing, like Ajahn Sumedho said to us, you know, in the beginning at Chittas, he said, when something frightens you, or you feel really bad about something about yourself, you know, you don't want to tell anybody, you're really kind of feeling kind of scared or something, just make it very conscious, you know, very conscious in your mind. So, for example, I don't know, Maybe you hate your boss, you know, and you're really dependent on this man or this woman, you know, right? And uh, all day long, you say, God, these horrible women, horrible man, you know, it's so selfish and miserable. You know, if you've seen The Office, you remember? Anybody seen The Office, the film? No? No? You live in England, you haven't seen The Office? <laughs> you have, do you remember the boss in The Office? Like obnoxious character? Anyway, that everybody hated. <laughs> anyway, you know, you think like that. And then consciously you say, I breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in. Hate. Breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, breathe out. Her gut. <laughs> now, it's an amazing, skillful means. Why? Because it really, it's like you replay on the screen of your mind a scenario without the emotions. Do you understand? You replay the thoughts that frighten you and scare you. I am frightened to die. Okay? So, oh my God, no. no. Don't talk about death. I'm frightened to die. Don't talk about that. So you say, I breathe, am, that's the nose, frightened, to die. After a while, these thoughts have lost their power. Do you understand? The power they had was the emotions that was pushing them into your mind. You can experience that, you know, you can experiment with that. So, as a dutiful student of Achin Samedo, I was doing my exercise with, I won't name the person because that would be embarrassing. It's, um, oh, I think I can tell, I can name the person. <laughs> because I think I've told the story and he knows, I think. Well, Ajahn Suchito was our mother superior for six years, you know. You realize we had Ajahn Suchito as a mother superior, somebody who was most, from my point of view, most disconnect, disconnected from the feminine energy, you know. I think we terrified him, actually. We thought he was disconnected, but actually it was like, what do I do with these women? You know, he was asked to take care of us, you know. And he was like completely sort of, you know, not, his feminine energy was somewhere else. I don't know where it was, but. So we were all strong women, very strong women at the sort of, in the first part of my life. And, uh, he has enormous gift, we know he's a great teacher, he's got so many gifts and talent and he's a wonderful monk and so on. And I remember, but as a mother superior, well, I, I have to express my, something about him. Without him, I don't think we would have a nuns community now. So that's pretty good, isn't it? Good start. And it's true, without, we got the most ascetic monk, the most 
disconnected monk with, the, with my eyes. And the most kind of, um, something almost, I can't remember now. But anyway, he was also the most kind of high discipline, you know. And he would die, it didn't, matter, it didn't matter for him if he died, you know. He used to do the most horrible job at Chetters, you know, was, I don't know, he had been in, I shouldn't say that, maybe. Anyway, he, he, he was kind of volunteer, he was the only one volunteering to do the, um, you know, the kind of chemical thing for, to spray things, you know, and it would be kind of, uh, sort of, uh, what is the word, um, when you can imagine things, you know, like all, all through the night, he was completely spaced out, you know, like drive completely kind of out of his mind. So he had an enormous kind of power of renunciation, I think. And I remember I um, I was using so this thing to this takes the 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 kind of the pin the the sting of any kind of negative feeling I could have about him. So sometimes I had negative feeling, and I decided to purify my heart, you know, <laughs> with this technique. So. Uh, I, I, he was coming from in the sala in one way, and I was coming the other way, and I was walking very mindfully doing my walking meditation, and in the mind I say, "I hate you. I hate you." My intention was very clear; I was purifying the heart of anger. So it obviously works because he comes to me and he says. You know, Sundara, I think this year, I don't think you need to give up cheese and chocolate, you know. I think you need to practice metta for three months. <laughs> <laughs> this is a joy. This is a miracle of this life, you know. And then after that, I spent two weeks in hell thinking, how am I going to practice metta? But I knew I needed it. I was, you know, a good practitioner, good, good student. And I spent two weeks wondering how many people I was going to kill if I practiced metta. <laughs> I mean, I'm exaggerating to make it a bit more comical, but the mind said, I just can't stand being a meta type. I'm Zen. I'm like more Zen, like very strong, yang, no nonsense of that stuff, you know, not meta. It's like, oh, it's fluffy and pink and all that, you know. <laughs> can't stand it. I was black, straight, to the point. So emptiness was really great for me. And then so I said, my God, how am I going to do that? You know, I certainly don't want to become like a fluffy pink chick nuns. I just keep to smile all the time. It's going to say me, you be well, may you be happy. <laughs> may I be well, may I be happy. And go around with a kind of constant smile. I say, no way, I can't do that. I'm going to die, I think, if I do that. <laughs> I mean, it was real. I was thinking like that. And I thought, what am I going to do? Oh, my God, Vasa is coming in two days' time. I've got to find something quick. <laughs> and then, because I, I made a determination that's what I was going to do, you know. I, I did trust Ajahn Suchito. I trusted intuition in many ways, you know, even though I felt he was disconnected with feminines quite often. But he had a deep, deep Dharma, you know, practice. So he had a lot of connection with the truth, in a way. And uh, and it was obvious, you know, I was kind of practicing myself to let go of anger, and he tuned in with me. He said, yeah, you don't need to <laughs> cheese and chocolate, kind of get rid of that meta, you know? So it's a kind of tuning in like this. And so at some point I got that really I love my little voice of wisdom because they really come in unexpectedly in an unexpected package as well. So I was just at the breakfast one day thinking, how am I going to do this, you know, sort of ruminating. God, you know, I need to find something before 3rd of July, you know. What am I going to do, you know? want to do this, but I can't do this metta thing, you know. But I want to practice metta, but I don't want to do metta chant. Or just fill up myself with bright, radiant energy, can't stand it. So, eventually a little voice came again, my little voice was very sweet. He said, well, you can say, I can bear it. Now, don't tell me where it came from, I have no idea. I can bear it, and I knew immediately what I meant. Anything difficult, I'm going to say, I can bear it. Small, isn't it? It's not in the suttas anywhere. 
Also, Buddha talks about patience, which is about the same thing. Okay? I can bear it. And I, I said, oh, that was going to be my mantra for the summer. Straight away I picked it up, my mantra for the summer. And I did three months of just focused on that. I can bear it. And lo and behold, the interesting things is that as I gave myself the chance to, the permission to bear my mind, to bear with things, I had an enormous amount of unpleasant feeling in my body coming up, you know. A lot of unpleasant restlessness and you know, not pleasant, you know, it's not. And then, but I, I, you know, I was committed. I can bury it, so they were stuck. And I was, you know, all these things gave the gave themselves the permission to test me. <laughs> I can bury it. And by the end of three months, I was, didn't have much more meta really, but I had let go of tons of anger through this practice of meta. That was a paradox, isn't it? You practice meta. You know, by giving permission to those unpleasant things to be conscious, okay? And as you do this, then the metta is, comes naturally because your anger has decreased. Your reaction of anger has decreased. Maybe anger is still there, but you don't react with anger, okay? So that's a great teaching for me. That was a great teaching. Because in the practice, most of the difficult part of our practice is dealing with the reactivity of our mind, do you understand? Because the reactivity is really I, I, sorry, I. You say I, 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 that's it. You could say I, not just as I, like in English, but also ouch, ouch. In French you say I, instead of ouch you say I. So that goes well. He works in English, but not in French, and the other part works in French, but not in English. So, you could say the I, me, as ouch. The English word of translation of atta, ouch. So, did you like the story? Hmm? Don't tell Ajahn Sujito, please. <laughs> did you hear that, Rob? <laughs> He's a good friend of Ajahn <laughs> But you've heard the story before, haven't you? I'm sure. Many stories. Hmm. Yeah. So, well, time is uh, passing. Do you have any questions? Or I'm sure I can do a question answer tomorrow, otherwise.